watch, read, and listen to, because life is too short to waste time and money on bad shit. I'm Eric. I'm Jason. Welcome to episode five. Just six, as, six, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I guess you're right. Sorry. Yeah. Welcome to episode six. I'm, it's flying by so fast, <laughs> I'm just losing track of how many of these we've done. <laughs> Uh, just as a reminder, I co-host this podcast with Jason Santos, and neither I nor he has full control over the verbal torrent that cascades forth from his oral cavity. So keep the kitties away. All right. So what's new, Jason? What have you been up to? Um, things are good. Um, I'm growing my hair out. I think I'm going to try to get one on the hair, I think. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't had it in ages. Wow. So. I mean, I guess now's the time to do it, you know? Now's the time, yeah. It's like midlife crisis. Unless you want to be one of those, like, silver-haired foxes with a ponytail and burks. <laughs> exactly. big, big, fluffy socks with your Birkenstock. <laughs> yeah, no. I'm going for, like, cool guy. I don't know. Some yeah. sort of cool shit. I don't know what I'm telling. But, yeah, I got that going on. That's pretty awesome. Um, oh, you know what I wanted to tell you about? And I haven't mentioned this yet. Um, I was in San Francisco uh, a few weeks ago. And did the Don Heron Dashiell Hammett tour. Oh, awesome. So killer. Um, anybody that is ever in San Francisco, look up Don Heron, H-E-R-R-O-N. Um, he, and it's, as I learned on his tour, it's Dashiell Hammett. Um, and look up, um, you know, Don Heron, Dashiell Hammett tour. Um, he's the only guy to, that does it, I think, anymore. Um, and he's so good. He, like, he... Did it um, for a group of, like, eight friends of ours. And um, it was Hammett, but he also, like, wove in Charles Williford mm-hmm. and Fritz Lieber. It was so good. Wow. It was really killer. That sounds awesome. I yeah. would love to do that. Yeah, it's really good. I actually got some good, um, some good, because we stopped for a drink along the way, and I was kind of picking his brain for, you know, what, what are you reading? What are you doing? He gave me some picks that I had never... Heard of you may you you would probably know him. I'll I'll run him by you. Okay, but this guy is like you know super crime like he's crazy about it, right? So awesome. Yeah, so that was cool. I I, I'd recommend it to anybody. Killer. Yeah. What about you? What What do you got going on? Well, um, you know, we got back from Charleston a couple weeks ago. Oh yeah, went out there, and part of a big reason we went out there was to eat the food. Uh, Sean Brock, of course, has a couple of restaurants out there. So we went to Husk, uh, specifically, like one of the reasons I wanted to go to Charleston was specifically to go to Husk. So we went to Husk. I didn't realize that like the reservations are booked like three weeks out. Oh, so we actually went right when it opened and waited in line for lunch. Um, and how long did you wait? Probably about an hour and a half. Holy shit. Did and you have the kids with you? Uh, no, no. Oh, okay. Yeah, otherwise it never would have worked. We saw people with kids walk up and inquire and just, like, turn right around and walk Bailey, away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was amazing. You know, low country, barbecue, low country, cuisine, um, all native stuff. He's, you know, Sean Brock is reviving a lot of the crops and things that haven't been produced in that area since before the Civil War, and he's oh, cooking yeah. with all those things and working with people like Anson Mills that are bringing back, you know, grains like Carolina Gold Rice and things like that that are, like, some of the best rice, some of the best things in the world, and he's sort of bringing them back and cooking with the original recipes. So it's unbelievable. I had a whole so whole hog barbecue plate that was out of this world. We got a skillet cornbread. and This is all stuff like a very sort of high-end culinary take on a lot of this stuff, but like 
very simple, clean, straightforward, amazing food. We also went to his other restaurant. He has a fine dining restaurant called McCready's, and it was un- unbelievable. Really? Super good. Um, probably, uh, you know, interestingly enough, we went there specifically to go to Sean Brock's restaurants, but we went to um, another chef who's a James Beard-nominated chef who has a restaurant called Fig, which is an acronym for Food is Good. Don't love the name, i got to be honest, but <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, another restaurant that was booked out three weeks, but um, they have a communal table, and we went right when they opened, and we got two seats at the communal table, and it was by far the best meal that we had there. But I have to say, I was uh, really charmed by the sort of history and um, all of the, you know, sort of pre-Civil War architecture, around the time of the Civil War architecture that's going on there. It's a beautiful old city unlike anything you know i had ever been to and the food scene there is amazing we went out just about every night and had unbelievable food and uh nicole's my father-in-law nicole's dad and i uh did get in the car and hike it uh two and a half hours to the whole hog barbecue place that i was telling you about scott's oh barbecue where they have these massive what what do you mean it was, uh, I thought that this place was close to Charleston, but it turns out it's way on the outskirts. <laughs> and it was this place that, um, on mind of a chef, Sean Brock went to it and said, this guy's yeah, the undisputed right. master of whole hog, and he has these, right, right, right. like, special pits. It was, like, covered with, like, a road sign that these guys had uh, taken up. And um, so we went and had whole hog there, and this place was, like, a hole in the wall right off the highway, like, you know serious uh you know his like aunt and i think his mom were working the counter and they had all these like whole hog pits in the back and we had um whole hog you know carolina style barbecue there with like the hot vinegar sauce and oh, all that stuff. Right. oh man it was unbelievable definitely worth the drive Holy i mean we were shit. sitting in like it looked the restroom looked like a storeroom that just had like cases of soda and all sorts of like plates and supplies this was like yeah serious down home country like roadside barbecue and it was really, really good. Definitely oh, worth the drive. Shit. I loved it. I like that sort of like spicy, but the most succulent tender pork that I've ever had because they take all the parts and they just like pull it and mix it all together. So you're getting rib meat, you're getting, you know, shoulder, you're getting all this different stuff, tenderloin and belly. all that stuff, belly. Yep, all mixed yeah. in together and it's unreal. So Fucking good. Hell. What, did, what did they have for sight? Did they have greens? Um, yep, they had most most Beans. of the traditional size. We had a some red velvet cake before we split out of there too, like oh, southern yeah. style, you know, red velvet cake. Man, it was it was definitely worth it. So for anyone who's passing through South Carolina, Scott's Barbecue, uh, about two hours northwest of Charleston, is definitely definitely worth your while. Killer. I'm gonna pop open this can here. This sound. I'm not having a beer. I'm doing this episode completely. Completely sober. Wow. So this could be fucking terrible. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's get down to the categories. Uh, So this week for Read, we wanted to talk about a book that you couldn't put down. And why don't we have you kick this one off? This was awesome. Um, I I love, this is a fun one, right? Because it's not like, the it's a very specific thing. It's not the best of this or the best of that. And I had, um, so when I first started thinking about this, um, the very first book that came to mind was Pick Up, Williford book. I've had him on a brain since that tour, you know? Right, yeah, yeah. Um, 
And it, that book is just so fucking good. And I couldn't put that down. Like, that was one that I... But to be that's not what I want to talk about today. Like, I want to save that one because I, I feel like right. that... You know, it's funny you say that because one of the first things that popped to mind was when I think about this, and this isn't what I chose either, but The Killer Inside Me by Jim Thompson was the first ever Jim Thompson book that I read. And when oh, I wow. read it, I was like, I've never read anything like this. I... I uh, had just started a new job at the time, but all I wanted to do was, like, I wish I just had some time off and I could just sit until I read this book until it was done. Because it's so unbelievably good. That's definitely one of those ones, yeah, that you just want to tear through it. Like, you can't, you don't want to do anything else once you start it, right? Yeah. Um, so, the one that I chose um, is, I was poking around the basement and just thinking about it, and I saw, and just stumbled across um, this book, and it was a vacation book. Um, which lots of times stick with you, right. you know, because you got time and you you spend time with a book and you're in a memorable place. But um, we, Beth had took um, like two months off when she stopped um, working at in San Francisco before we moved out here, and we took a long trip out into Gold Country. I love it out there. Uh-huh. It's magical. One of my favorite places in the world. Um, and I go crazy. I'm a plaque reader. I'm reading all the plaques every... You know what I mean? Every book. Yeah, I gotta read them all. And all the little... You know, these towns are super small still. Like, there's not a shitload of commerce out there. There's not right. a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, tourism is huge. Um, and they all have... The museums in these small towns out that way are are untouched. And there's like... And they're kept going by sort of the... You know, just the good graces of the local people that are, you know, proud of their heritage. So um, I picked up this book called The Diary of a 49er Hmm. um, at one of these museums and started into it, and it was so fucking riveting. I could not stop with it. It was, there was something about it. So obviously I'm in the same place, so he's saying all these names, and the names, there's towns, of course, but there's also um, bars, which is like a section of a river. We were on the mm-hmm. Yuba River, the North Fork of the Yuba River, okay. which was huge gold country. Like, that's all... The, and it still is. Like, they're still digging gold up there. Wow. Um, they, they only recently started mining for gold again when the numbers got high enough to make it worth the investment. So gold has obviously been rising and rising. Yep. So they've just started doing it again. Plus now they just frack for it, right? <laughs> just frack for gold. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're just up there tearing the shit out of the California rivers. Um, we laugh. It's probably not long, man. Yeah. Fuck. But, um, yeah, so there's all these places that he's talking about, you know, this is in the, you know, this is in 1850, 1852, between 1850 and 1852. Wow. This book takes place in. So this guy came from Connecticut, single guy, 30 years old, crosses, um, he actually, I'm not going to pretend to know. He I, he may have sailed around the Horn um, and then up to San Francisco instead of... Because at the time, it was six of one, half a dozen of another. Right. It's just as treacherous to cross by, you know, by wagon train as it is to sail. Right. And it takes, a, I think, about the same time. Wow. So, yeah. Um, but at any rate, um, I don't want to go on too long about this, but it's it was so... Um, he would sit down and write in it every Sunday night. Um, so the it's made up of all of his diary entries 
And he's obviously, he's not a writer. He's a right. prospector. Yeah. So it's written pretty matter-of-factly. Um, hmm. But it has, the book has this draw that's very similar to, um, what's that? What's that World War One book? And, and I think there may be even more than more than just that one war now called What They Carry or What They Carried. Oh, right. It was all the like uh, excerpts from diaries of World War One soldiers. Yeah. Are you familiar yeah. with this? I've heard of it. I haven't read it. But... Yeah. So I feel like they've. I feel like there's a few versions. I know there's one from World War One. I. I feel like there's one from I think the Civil one War. From Vietnam as well. And I right? think there's one from the Vietnam War. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, and those things, to me, are endlessly fascinating. Um, I don't know what it is about them, but you're able to, like, take yourself out of, like, whatever your problems are. Mm-hmm. So, like, this guy, this miner, you know, his entry would be like, all right, well, today we did the wash, and then I baked a loaf of bread, and then I walked down to the other fucking mine down the thing and said <laughs> hello to the guy and came back, and that's his fucking day. That's the whole thing, you know? But, like, it took him four hours to bake a loaf of bread, you know? And other days, like, he's like, oh, yeah, well, today we found the body of old man Casadero at the bottom of the thing, and we buried him not Jesus. far away. It was a gruesome affair. And so it's, it's like, he's kind of, it's not just a recording of the facts and what happened and how much gold he got. It was, like, he, he brought more to it. Like, he talks about, like, when women would come into camp. And he did, he fell for one woman. And this guy, the thing, the reason his story is a lot different than so many other miners is that he didn't drink, he didn't gamble, so he was able to, like, carry on for two, three straight years, whereas so many people would go in, strike, blow it, get shot, whatever, right. you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So. Huh. That does sound really interesting. I think what's, you know, when you describe the someone writing about the minutia of their day and doing the wash and stuff like that. It doesn't sound riveting, but I think the thing that makes those books so fascinating is it's you're hearing directly from someone who's experienced this life and uncovering this world for you that it's so interesting and so particular yeah. that um, it's so far removed from our experience of the world that it's endlessly fascinating to just find out all of the details of this other world. It's like this hidden world. Which is the same reason why um, that book that I recommended to you today, that book, The Job, uh, that just came out. That's like real life stories told very matter-of-factly from this guy who was an NYPD beat cop that then went on to be a lieutenant. And it's the exact same thing I was reading. I was like, this isn't, there's nothing about this that's amazing writing or amazing prose. What's so interesting about it is he's telling you the real day in, day out emotions and details and all of the stuff. Um, in a very authentic way, you're you're kind of experiencing what it means to be a cop. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like you get to like live in his shoes for a little while, and yeah, it's those little details, right? Because that's what our days are. Our days are like the little things that we do. There's no huge fucking drama. I mean, sometimes there is, but it's not. You know, that's what makes it so real is hearing all those little details. Yeah. Anyway, I just I went crazy for it, and I just I picked it up. Um, this was a couple days ago. I just started thumbing through it and just reading some of the passages I could remember right back to like where I was on the river when I was reading it. Hmm. Um, it's a super vivid memory. It's, yeah. it's a good one. That's awesome. Yeah. What do you got? What, what, what's, what's your one? So I had a hard time with this because, you know, I go through a ton of books. I love books. There's nothing, you know, yeah. of all the categories we talk about, books are probably nearest and dearest to my heart. Um, I can't live without, you know, reading a great book just about every day. Yeah. 
Um, but when I really thought about it, the one that stuck out for me was this book called The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. So what this is, is it's a fantasy book, but he basically took the well-planned crime sort of caper genre and mashed it up with fantasy. And I love nothing more than like a mashup of multiple genre fictions that's done yeah. really well. And, and this is amazingly uh, done amazingly well. And it starts from the time that this main character, whose name isn't Locke Lamore, it's not his real name, it's this identity that he assumes. From the time he's like sort of an Oliver Twist-style beggar uh, and thief in this crew who lives in um, the disinterred graves in this graveyard in the city, and there's this this guy who's like a scumball who's the master. And this uh, Locke Lamore is like uh, so precocious and so uh, intelligent, but also such a troublemaker that he's even like too terrible for this crew, and he gets kicked out. Uh, and he's taken under the wing of this guy who is pretending to be a priest from some religion who pretends to be blind, he pretends to be this priest, but really he's this guy's a master thief and a master con artist, and he basically takes him into this hand-picked children uh, that he's, he's training to be uh, blend into high society, to do all these things that they need to do to con. He basically turns this guy into a, uh, Lachlamore into a master con artist, and this kid who's so intelligent was basically born to be this. He was born to succeed this this guy and take over this crew. And uh, it's this whole fascinating story about this crew of young kids that Locke Lamora ends up leading and pulling off these like masterful long con crimes on like the Jeez. high society of this world. And it's absolutely riveting. Absolutely fascinating. Is it set it's in the like, future? It's, uh, no, it's, it's set in like you know, I would say, uh, you know, an alternate universe sort of medieval-ish times. And it's, unlike a lot of fantasy, it's not relying on magic. Like, magic is very sparse, and it's this thing that's very elusive. Like, they don't use any magic to do what they're doing. It's all done by the um, stagecraft and theater and, you know, pickpocketing and sleight of hand and all that kind of stuff. So it's for those people who, like, balk at fantasy because they can't stand dragons and magic and wizards and all that bullshit... Um, which I actually love, uh, and welcome in fantasy books, high fantasy books. Um, this doesn't have any of that. It's a much more sort of like grounded in the real world sort of, um, you know, y you could see it almost like a mammoth well-planned crime or, you know, or no one of those inserted right into this. So How old is it? Uh, so it's just, just out of curiosity. Yeah, I would say it's about maybe the last... Seven years. So pretty new. Pretty new. Yeah. Yeah, this guy, the series, it's a quintet that uh, hasn't finished yet. Oh. Or, sorry, a quartet. It's a quartet that hasn't finished yet. The um, last book is about to come out, hopefully, in 2016. So the first three books are out now, and uh, sort of wire style. The next one is this completely, it's called Red Seas Under Red Skies. I think it's equally as good, but it's all about pirates and these capers on a ship. And, no shit. Uh, they have to flee because of the first crime they committed in the city. So they both, uh, he and his best friend, who's the sort of big sort of brawler, uh, expert swordsman kind of guy, who's like the muscle to his brains. Right. Um, they end up, it's like a sailing thing. You would love it because it's all about pirates and sailing and oh, heists yeah. and yeah, all that, that kind of stuff. Killer. So it's really good. Yeah. Jesus. So you, the fir from the first one, you were just hooked. I'm totally hooked. Yeah, these are... 
uh, Scott Lynch says he's been taking a while to get them out because he got he got divorced and he had some stuff going on in his family. He seems to be in a much better situation now, so they should be coming out a little more regularly. But the whole fantasy committee was like waiting with bated breath for the third one to come out. A third one is called the Republic of Thieves. Uh, so it's Liza Lamora, Red Sea and Red Skies, Republic of Thieves, which is um, him dueling with this uh, the love of his life to win, vie to win this political election through scamming and all this kind of stuff. It's really, Holy really good. Shit. Yeah, they're really good. Oh, cool. So uh, next, moving on to our next category, uh, we're going to listen. And for this week, we want to talk about three cover songs that you think are better than the originals. It's a good one. This is a controversial topic. I'm, oh, for I'm sure, sure I'm going to piss some people off with my oh, choices yeah. in this one. But... Yeah, you may piss me off. I feel, like... <laughs> <laughs> I feel I was thinking, I was trying to guess what you... Would, what you'd become. I'm anxious to hear what, what you got. Should yeah. we go back and forth with them? Yeah, let's go back and forth. All right. You start. All right. So my first one is um, I love uh, Johnny Cash, but I also, I think it was, you know, when uh, Rick Rubin got him to do the American. It was Rick Rubin that did the oh, American yeah. Yeah, yeah, recordings, yeah. right? I think the American recordings was such a brilliant move. Oh, it's for, Are you going to um, do Hurt? Is it, is I'm the, doing Hurt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hurt by... Uh, originally by Nine Inch Nails, covered by Johnny Cash. Yeah. So I'm going to try to play a little bit of this here. It's so true. I mean, it's I, I couldn't agree with you more on this. So here's a, a little sample for those who haven't had the pleasure yet to hear the cover of Hurt by Johnny Cash. Sorry, that was a little long. I just wanted to get to the chorus because I think the chorus is so good. But something about like the gravelly sort of, you know, like crotchety old Johnny Cash. He has this gravitas in his voice when he sings it that he brings something completely different to it that's so him but so different than the original and in a way that just feels like he adds this depth of emotion that um, to the Nine Inch Nails lyrics that it just feels like this completely different thing that's more layered than the original, and that's what For I love sure. about it. Oh, my God. Yeah, that one is... There's no question... When that came out, I was I was floored. 
That that stuff is so good. All that Rick Rubin yeah. stuff that he did is Absolutely. so so yeah. good. Rick Rubin is a genius. He's still doing super, oh, obviously producing yeah. a lot of hip hop and doing super smart stuff. So yeah. All right. So what do you got for your first one? All right, I got. Um, this is not easy. As usual, I had like. I got six. Fucking honorable mentions. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's like, like yeah, I always cheat. It's like. Pick three, and it's like, well, no, there's more than three. All right, I'm going to start with um, with one that I don't think anybody would disagree with, but it's also no huge surprise. So, um, all along the Watchtower, right? Mm-hmm. Um, amazing song. It's it's a standard at this point. Um, it's Dylan. He's nobody's better writing songs, right? Yep. But he's fucking terrible. He's Dylan. Like <laughs> I mean, he sounds. Te- I mean, he doesn't always sound terrible. But when you put when you take like what he did, and then you know just a few years later, Hendrix covers it and right. turns it into an instant classic. Right. Like it's just you know it, he just took that song to another level. You know, so let me play, um, this is not going to sound awesome, but let me, here, let's listen to Dylan for a second. <laughs> it's like winding out this, um. Think of the great Dylan songs. That is not one that pops to mind. But no, well, it, you mean the song itself or that recording or that performance of it? I yeah, guess. it's like you know, I'm I'm not spinning Dylan records to necessarily particularly hear that song. No, I guess hell no, no. And honestly, like, I mean, this don't get me wrong. I love Dylan, and I love listening to Dylan. I love hearing him sing. But I mean, Jesus. So let's let's listen to like. This song, I mean, everybody's heard the song three trillion times, but if you think, I just try and imagine what it was like at the time when it came out. So you hear Dylan releases his record, right, and you hear it and you're like, wow, that's a great song. Sounds like shit. Um, (laughs) And then then Hendrix, right, then Hendrix comes along and... There's a a resurgence in like the, of re-releases that are coming out. There's great remastered stuff. 
I'm kind of like in, on a new kick of Hendrix yeah. lately where I haven't listened to him in so long. But like the first time I heard All on the Watchtower was Hendrix's version. And even that just like it was like opened up everything for me. Yeah. It opened up Hendrix. You're like, holy shit. He's do- like, it sounds like he's playing backwards yeah. half the time. Like, he's yeah. amazing. The instrumentation on that version is not only so different, but so great. Yeah. You know, it just has this like fullness. It takes up like the entire space right? that you're listening in. And yeah. It's just so much more dynamic. He's great. So, that's a really good pick. Thank you. So, for my next one, um, I picked something uh, from the Unplugged in New York, MTV Unplugged in New York Nirvana. Oh, record. sure. Um, which not the, Bowie. No. Okay. No, I didn't. I, that one, I, I was tempted, but no, I didn't do that. Because they play a, a few covers. Yeah, uh, they do. Yeah, I think three. What's the, what's the Bowie? Um, the Man Who Sold the, the World. The Man Who Sold the World. Yeah. And that's a huge, that was a huge hit for Nirvana. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, I actually picked, you know, they actually miss... Uh, label it on the track because they they say the song is called Where Did You Sleep Last Night. Oh, uh, yeah, But it's yeah, yeah. a lead belly song in the pines yeah. is what it actually is. So they actually mislabel it. But here's, a, for those who haven't heard it, here's a little bit of the Nirvana song. Once again, I just think like Kurt Cobain's voice just lends into it. Also, I think what doesn't help the original version is the recording of Lead Belly was so bad. It was probably a field recording done by right. you know someone. Here's here's just a little clip of the Lead Belly one. Also interesting, they, obviously, Nirvana changed the lyric from "black girl" to "my girl" when they when they sang it. Oh yeah, probably I never just not that. to shake up some controversy there. So taking a little artistic and politically correct license to change the lyrics, but um, yeah, I mean, Lead Belly, great bluesman. Yeah, um, yeah, you can obviously hear that that's being recorded. You know, in the middle of some wide open space probably like i said a field recording maybe alan lomax or something like yeah. similar um but and lead belly it's like you know he's not a brilliant guitar player not a great vocalist either so but obviously a great songwriter for sure and yeah. you know there's a there's a raw power and a raw emotion to the lead belly version but i think there's an equal amount of um power with um better instrumentation um I think the Nirvana version retains the rawness and the emotion, but just adds some kind of polish and 
Kurt Cobain's voice, I think, just really drives it home. So yeah, no, it's a good pick. I, I um, I've always loved Lead Belly. Like he's got that that kind of crazy vibrato. Yeah, that's like almost like it's like he just turns it on for a second, and, and it's <laughs> yeah. like and it's almost fake or something. Like yeah. it's not like a natural vibrato, right? Or like a smooth, like flowing vibrato. It's just like on or off, you right. know. But in that twelve string, just sounds like a. Um, it, it just, I don't know, it was, I don't know if a lot of players at the time were using 12 strings or not. Right. I, I think yeah. there were a few other players that were, but for him, it's a pretty signature sound. He does have the label King of the 12 string guitar, right? That's right, yeah, Or at does. least in one of his records, he's labeled that way, so. Yeah. All right, All right. good what pick. Do you, what do you got next? My next pick is, um, probably people, people don't, probably don't give a shit. Oh, this is actually kind of funny, because you just played Cobain. The woman who covers this next song that I'm going to play is famous because she banged Kurt Cobain, and that's about it. I mean, people people dig her, but... It's Courtney Love. Yeah, it's, oh my God, it's not Courtney Love. Fuck no. Um, it's uh, Mary Lou Lord, who okay. like gained some fame by, like I said, banging Kurt Cobain. Um, but I think she's... I, I love her. Um, you know, I'm not an enormous fan. She has one record um, that she plays down in a tea station in Boston. Mm. Um and she covers um, Thunder Road, and I can't stand Springsteen. I I, I appreciate him as a songwriter, um, but I just don't like him. Like everything that he writes, and I and I would the first time I heard this song, I was like, oh yeah, Thunder Road. That's a that's a Springsteen song. And holy shit, it's actually a really good song. And then I, I would go and listen to the Springsteen version. It's just it sounds fucking terrible. Like it just all of his songs sound the same to me. <laughs> It's like there's this big, like, hopper. It's like a, he just puts everything through a machine. And everything comes out and just like, it's put some saxoph- shitty saxophone in there. <laughs> like, some, like, bullshit guitar. And just shits out a song yeah. on the other end. I don't know, man. Some of, that, some of those early Springsteen records are brilliant, I think. Yeah, I, listen, I, I don't, I don't want to shit on them too hard. Because I, I know that I'm going to regret that at some point. I'll probably, like, be like, oh, yeah, this is good. I mean, Asbury Park, that's a great, that's a good record. Nebraska. It, Nebraska, I know I'm supposed to like it, but anyway, let me, um, here's, here's Springsteen after he pumped this through his, like, shitty denim, like, (laughs) song-making machine, um, Yeah, like that that piano playing is like so so like awkward and like clunky and he's just like this I don't know. It it doesn't fucking work for me. So the first time I heard Mary Lou Lord sing this song, I was like, "Oh my god, like she sings this line. I think it's the clip that I have here where um god, what's the line? It's like have faith there's magic in the night." Like it I couldn't I was like I don't know what it was. Sometimes when you hear these things, I was like, have faith that, like, there's still, even though I'm old and I'm, like, cranky, like, and, like, you know, and I could, like... And soon to have long hair. (laughs) Yep, and soon to have long hair. Um, It was, it's so good to hear. Like, I don't have to give up on, like, there is magic out, and, like, there's still things to get excited about and love, you know? So, and and I didn't know that that could happen from a Bruce Springsteen song Mm. until somebody covered it. So, here's, here's Mary Lou Lord. 
You're scared and you're thinking that maybe we ain't that young anymore. Show a little faith, there's magic in the night. That's really nice. Yeah, that, that uh, record, man, I, I don't care what it does to my punk rock cred. I love <laughs> that shit. I got goosebumps just listening yeah. to it right there. She's so good. You know, when you strip away some of that like over-instrumentation, it really puts a, more of an emphasis on the lyrics and what's That's actually it. said. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice. Yeah, Very thanks. nice. Good choice. So my uh, next one, um, I actually picked something from the Old Brother soundtrack. Oh. Um, and I, it's funny because... Uh, Chris Thomas King, who's sort of a contemporary sort of blues guy, uh, did Hard Time Killing Floor Blues. And I thought about picking that, and I actually went back and listened to the Skip James version. I was like, oh, hell no. The Skip James version is so incredible. Yeah. So much better than his version. Um, which, he does a good version of it, but it is not better than the original. Uh, so what I actually picked was um, the Ralph Stanley acapella Oh, death during the cross burning scene, scene where they're yeah. getting ready to burn the cross and he steps up and uh, sings the acapella version of Oh, death, which was an original Doc Boggs song. So uh, first I'll, I'll do what you're doing and I'll start with the Doc Boggs version and then I'll play the Ralph Stanley version, which if anyone hasn't, uh, you know, first of all, Old Brother is a great movie. Oh my God. Uh, amazing yeah. soundtrack. Yeah. Maybe one of the best movie soundtracks of all time. Oh, it's so but good. But the yeah. Ralph Stanley version is definitely, uh, the Ralph Stanley acapella version of Oh Death is definitely a high point of that movie soundtrack. But here's the Doc Boggs version. And here, for comparison, is the Ralph Stanley version. Stanley just outclasses Doc Boggs, not only with, I think, feeling and emotion, but his voice is, just has a, a quality to it. I mean, Doc Boggs, you know, here well, is someone pi song. pioneering, you know, uh, you know, one of the original bluegrass slash blues sort of pioneers, but, you know, that Ralph Stanley version just adds 
something takes it up a couple levels at least in my my opinion and such classic yeah. Appalachian sound it's so yeah. good I love yeah. Yeah, I, I think, never get tired of that yeah Ralph Stanley it's not like you know some classically trained singer he still comes from that same part of the country still adds that sort of same authenticity to it but just takes it to the next level so that's, nice. that's why I picked that one good one so I, I'll tell you I changed my mind last minute um I had, because when I looked at the category, um, for, I guess if you had ever asked me, like, my favorite cover song is Do You Want to Dance, a Ramones version of the Bobby Fielder song. Because um, it's so, it's so good. Like, there's something about, I mean, the Ramones anyway, I can't ever get enough, you know. Um, but there's something about that version, um, that particular song that, I don't know, I just love it so much. But... Um, the Bobby Fielder version is amazing too. So I kind of was like, not the greatest pick. So then I, I started thinking, well, what else would I do? And I have a friend, a close friend that is in um, a cover band, and he's in. It's probably they're probably the most well known like punk rock cover band in the states. The Me First and the Gimme Gimmies. They're mm. they're great. Um, they've been doing this for years, and they do like a they do sort of a different theme for every record, and they got like. I don't know, eight records, hmm. half a dozen eight records. Wow. Um, and um, they're on Fat Records. Okay. So it's a, it's a super group in, like, kind of the Bay Area punk rock scene. Huh, interesting. Yeah. So um, so I chose um, a Prince song, um, Nothing Ooh. Compares to You. Wow. Um, you're, which you're dissing the man in his hometown. Here's the thing. <laughs> Um, so he wrote it, the family recorded it, and then Sinead O'Connor covered it. Oh, right. And then... Which is probably the version everyone knows. That's the version everyone knows. People our age, people younger than us have no idea who Sinead O'Connor even is. They do not. Unless they're Irish. The Sinbad O'Connor, yeah. Yeah. No, no idea. Um, but I have super fond memories of Sinead O'Connor, like, when, um, when I was first discovering, like, alternative radio, like, dark end of the dial stuff, I remember Mm -hmm. her being on um a lot you know like she was getting radio play at the time um like on college stations and stuff but so anyway i want to play um i'm gonna play three clips of the song i i think in in my opinion the original is better than the Sinead o'connor version but then the gimme's i think is better than all three so here's the family arrangement right yeah. those strings it's pretty crazy it's pretty crazy yeah. so here's um and Sinead O'Connor obviously carried over some of that string she stripped it down a little bit but there's that stringed instrumentation on the Sinead O'Connor yeah version. hers is 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 definitely highly produced as well yeah. that whole album of hers is highly produced I don't know who did it but um yeah here, let's listen to her version everybody's heard this a million fucking times but whatever 
Here's Shane O'Connor whining. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> And then the Gimme Gimme is bringing it to absolute high art with <laughs> their version. <laughs> That band to me is, and not just because he's my friend, but my friend Spike, he's the lead singer, and mm -hmm. he's the magic in that thing. Like he's his arrangements, I think, are are killer. Well, I I always appreciate cover songs that you know, if you're gonna do it, and I think even average cover songs, if you're gonna you know, it's got to add a new context or some sort of new dimension to the song, and right. that's what that does really well. Yeah, and there was a. A Beatles, like an entire Beatles cover record, that came, like it had Rufus Wainwright and a bunch of people on it, and the songs were so like the original songs. There was like, what is even the point of this besides you singing a Beatles song? You like hear... someone wanted to make money off Beatles and only have to pay part of the royalties <laughs> as opposed to <laughs> all of them, you know? Yeah. So yeah, you would hear a new interpretation, right? Yeah, absolutely. And if you're not bringing a new interpretation to it, you know, there's not. Shh, then yeah, just write your own song. All right, so uh, next category, moving right along here, for the eat category. Um, oh, yeah, 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 I forgot about this one. We're, we're actually going to cheat a little bit here and go into um, something that might be more, more considered drink than eat. That's fine, but, Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> uh, so we wanted to talk, something that I know that you and I have both kind of dipped in and out of, and that is juicing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And specifically, I'd love to hear... Because I honestly go back and forth about this. When I made my notes originally for this podcast, I was a firm no. I'm like, I think juicing is bullshit. That's, that's where I was coming down. The and then today I just ordered 12 cold pressed yeah, juices I, delivered it, to my house. I don't know. <laughs> what the fuck? How would you ever say so it's bullshit? Here's, here's what I think. And I think this is similarly confusing. There's so much confusing information online about wh what's good for you, what's not good for you. It changes all the time. It's this ever-moving hard to decipher a landscape where a bunch of people have interest in making you believe one thing and a bunch of people have interest in the other and the government is so slow and science is so slow to react to some of this stuff. And so the whole thing on juicing for me is I like that I can get, it's an easy way to get extra servings of vegetables because you and I both sort of gravitate towards the green juices. Yep. The, and I think buying the philosophy of, um, you know, juice your veggies, eat your fruits. That's it. Yeah. No, no, no. Vice versa. Oh, no, no, that's yeah. it. Juice your veggies, yeah. eat your fruits. Yeah. Because yeah. you can't, you don't want to juice 20 apples or some shit. Yeah. It's too much sugar. Plus, you want to get the fiber. You yeah. want the fiber, yeah. Yep. Juice your veggies, eat your fruit, right. 
So, you know, and I, I buy into that, and that's what I like about it, because even though I think we both have the best of intentions to eat a kale salad every day for lunch, or at least at dinner time, we're busy, we're traveling, it's not always easy to get access to healthy food, but it's easy to grab a juice, a green juice. It is, yeah. Here and there, and um, or to grab something in the morning when you're too busy to make breakfast for yourself. But It's great, yeah. Um, that's the part that I like about it. The part that I... I don't and and I usually feel pretty good honestly when I'm mostly sticking to the green juice when there's too much fruit juice in it I, I kind of feel like it starts to maybe upset my stomach or like throw my body out of balance a little bit yeah um, which is why and I think drinking more than one a day like the whole juice fast thing I do not I don't like oh I'm, I love it oh really Oh, I'm I love not. It. I do not buy into the whole juice fast thing. You got, you've, probably, you've never done it though. I've never done it. Well, you got to try it. it. Now, full disclosure, I haven't done it in ages. Not for an extended period of time. I did one last year for like four or five days. I was in a weight loss competition with Dave actually. So right. it was a couple of years ago, and um, and I dropped some pounds. Somehow he beat me. I don't know how the hell he beat me, but um, but. Um, I did. I done. I did one for like almost sixty days. I was like fifty eight days on just juice. And were you um, buying the cold pressed juices, or were you juicing yourself? No, this was years ago, before okay. the cold pressed juices. Um, right, years ago. Um, and yeah, I didn't eat not a lick, nothing, not a bite hmm. for nearly two months. And and I was building a house. Like I had like a lot of physical activity. Like I needed. But I just drank a shitload of juice. Right. So I juice a shitload in the morning. And ideally, you want to drink a juice immediately after you make it. Right. You know, oxygen is no friend to a, a fresh fresh juice. So, but whatever. I was, you know, it's better than nothing. So I juice, make a huge, like, almost a gallon of juice. Bring it with me. Drink it all day. Then come home and juice a ton again. And then go to bed. I, you wake up in the morning. Bright. Boom. Up. Right. So clear-headed. Clear-headed. Yeah. Tons of energy, like clarity. It's amazing. It's it's. I mean, I know people have this to say about it, and that to say about it, and and maybe it's not the most effective way to lose weight. I'm sure it's not, um, you know. But I think there's something to be said for not eating for a day, even if it's just one day. Just right. drink juice and don't eat for a day. Well, there's a lot of scientific studies, especially recently, talking about fasting. Yeah, you know, in general, the health benefits of fasting. Obviously, fasting was a built-in part of most religions and ancient cultures, and but there's a lot of it basically like reboots and completely kickstarts your immune system uh, when you fast. It does lots of really positive things for, for you for sure for all of your you know health measures if you fast even for a you know very short amount of time. Fuck. Yeah, it, honestly, it is a short just a day. Yep. Fuck, I should start doing it again. Like, what's a one day? The thing is, is that, the, the thing that's tough is that if you go, the hard part is like the first three days. Oh, yeah. You feel like crap the first day and a half at least. Yeah, and you're starving. Yeah. But once three, four days pass, you're not even hungry, you know? Yep. I, I will say uh, a friend of mine, Nicole's, swears by it. She's been doing only juice and raw vegetables and nuts for, I think, Five years. Holy shit. And she was having all sorts of um, physical and some emotional problems that, like, completely evaporated. She lost uh, 
not that she was like very heavy to begin with, but she like slimmed way down and was just like super healthy. And she absolutely swears by it. So I don't think it necessarily works for everyone, but I think for some people, like, you know, give it a shot, try it. I'm I'm still kind of on the fence. I'm still trying to figure out whether or not it works for me. Oh, not. I know it works for me. And raw food, too. we got to talk about that at some point. Yeah. Because that's a huge thing. Like, I don't know that it's difficult to do constantly, but raw, fresh juice is... We have it. We either have that or green smoothie every morning. Mm-hmm. So at least three, four mornings a week, Jack and I and Mimi or Nanny are having carrot... Kale, chard, apple juice. Wow. It's killer. And the it's kid so likes good. it. He goes apeshit for it. Nice. He goes nuts for it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, maybe we'll have to try Juice Fast. <laughs> That'll be fun. <laughs> and report back it. on the podcast. All right. Yeah, we'll see. Okay. So, for the, our last topic, this week is watch. Uh, and we wanted to talk about. Uh, the theme for this was Crime 101. If you had to give someone an education in crime in three films, what would they be? Yeah, man, that's a rough one. <laughs> yeah, this is, a, this is a, t- a tough one for sure. This is really hard. Um, because, so, my head first goes to, like, you know, there's so many, again, similar to the first category, like, this isn't the best movies, Mm-hmm. Right? This isn't the best crime movie ever. It's if you're going to give a history of crime films, what are they, right? So I wanted, I didn't want to, kind of the purpose of this podcast is to weed out shit, right? So yeah. I'm not going to talk about shitty movies. Because <laughs> for one, the, right. I think a lot of people, and as I started thinking through it, like there's shitty movies like The Untouchable. Yeah. The Untouchables, right? It's a terrible movie. Um, <laughs> Brian De Palma, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. yeah, another fucking Kevin Costner piece of shit, right? So, yeah. but it's it, it arguably dances with Tommy Gunn. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's arguably a, an important film in in crime. You know, in yeah. the genre, I, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a piece of garbage. But it also, you know, it's the Elliot Ness thing. There's like there's an homage to Eisenstein in it. You know what I mean? There's yeah. like the the baby carriage thing. Yeah. Like there, it's it, people could make the argument. I, I would. Yeah cut them down, but you could say that. You know, and then there's uh, Shawshank Redemption, I think is a great movie and has a place on that list. It's not, I, I don't, I'm not putting it on my list. Goodfellas, Godfather, all those, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, popular movies that yep. could have a place aren't on my list. So, here's my three. Um, I'm sorry, and I kind of did, um, I, I, I skewed a little bit older, um, not surprisingly, but I think White Heat is an important um, important crime film. So that's um, that's Cagney, 1949. Um, he kind of... Um, well, he, he plays... Here's why I think it's important sort of as a defining film. Because it's like it's got so many important... And he introduces... It's pretty early in the game, 49. I mean, there were obviously tons of crime films before that. Little Caesar was in the 30s, I think, um, another huge one, but, um, so Cagney plays a psychopath, um, which is a great characteristic of a, of a, of a good bad guy, right? A, yeah. a, a psychopath is, that's a good one to have. Um, he breaks out of jail, which is great, everybody loves that, breaking out of jail. He's got, a, um, you know, he's got a mother complex, which that, 
throwing that in there. That's great. He's obsessed with his mom. Um, for anybody who hasn't seen the film, you've probably seen the scene where she's like, his mom's fixing up the house. Oh, my son's coming home. My son's coming home. And she's like getting the house ready, getting it ready. And he gets, and she opens the door. Somebody knocks on the door and she opens it and Cagney's falls face first in the living room. It's like, that's white heat. Um, it, oh, and, and also there's a, like, they're planning a, a payroll heist, which uh-huh. is another classic crime thing. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. ripping off a payroll is, everybody knows it's a great, yep. it's, a, it's a great heist, you know. So, I think White Heat is is a good starting place. Um, moving on from there forward, just a few years, um, is Rafifi. Um, I don't think anybody would argue that that... It, has a place on this list. So I actually also picked Rafifi. Rafifi was my first pick. And one of the interesting things that I figured out, and I think you and I, might we might have talked about this last time because you said... Um, We're talking about Desan. Yep. Yeah. We're talking about Jules Desan, Rafifi, and um, uh, Le Cercle Rouge was mm. another one that I picked out. And actually there's a heist in that and the no talking, there's like, you know, famous 16-minute no-talking scene in Le Cercle Rouge. Well, that was inspired by Rafifi. Yeah. And there was another movie where they had a really long scene with no dialogue at all as well, where they're pulling off heist, and that was also inspired by Rafifi. So it's like, Rafifi is not only, like I told you before, did like people go out and commit the crimes like I two days that. later. That's so great. In the same yeah. way, people ripped off <laughs> banks. It was like... So meticulously researched that people could actually commit the crime this way, and they banned the movie in a whole bunch of countries. I think in Mexico and some other places where people actually committed rob banks using the same method from the movie. That's so great. But the fact that it inspired all these, like, whoa, no one ever thought to, like, of course there would be no dialogue. Yeah, you know, no, no music. Yeah, and and you're right. I think um, the, the one of the other important things about that is like the the craft, like film craft, has a place in. And I think what's interesting about that sequence, it's nearly half an hour, um, is I think other movies use that as, like... I mean, the movie is built around that. Yeah. Um, but that's in the second act. Like, that's in the middle of the movie. Right. So it's not like we're building up to it's this... It's not a climax. It's not. Ocean's Eleven style. Exactly. You know? No, it's yeah. not. It's second act. And then third act is... The Stefan Waz, who's... I love that that's his name. The Stefan Waz. Yeah. Um, it's him, like, basically on a, a super, like, downhill spiral demise. He's, he's tuberculosis, alcoholism. Like, he's mm-hmm. losing weight. He's going downhill. But that the kidnapping happens in the third scene. Right. In the third act, rather. Um, yeah, yeah. Right? And he's got... And it's... He, 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 whatever it takes, he's getting that kid back. Right. Oh, that fucking movie is so good. Yeah. God. From the first time I saw it, it was just never the same again. All right. Um, so why don't you why don't you go with your third pick? Let's do let's do them as sets since it kind of they kind of go together. Yeah, my third pick is um, this wasn't easy because I didn't know like I wanted to kind of talk about something, and I don't know if I hit the mark here. Um, Pulp Fiction, I think, is, like, a a logical choice. You know, I didn't choose that. Um, I wanted to choose... I I wanted to talk about something different that maybe people aren't... Everyone under the sun has seen Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was thinking about Miami Blues, um, because I love that movie. 
early, and, early Alec Baldwin. Yeah, and again, you've never seen of, Alec Baldwin so young. Oh my God! Yeah, you haven't really. Um, and again, because I'm just stuck on Wilford, you know. Um, I was listening to someone the other day, and someone referenced Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross as like young Alec Baldwin. I was like, oh no, Miami Blues. <laughs> oh, no. He's like 18 years younger in Miami Blues than he was in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's so good. I love Miami Blues. Um, but I chose Usual Suspects. Nice. Um, that's like mid-90s. Yep. Um, and I think it's just got so many great like crime film characteristics that I, it's, I think it's important because um, the way that the facts unfurl is masterful. Yes. Like you don't know. You feel like you're... Um, Robert Ebert, I remember he, him talking about the movie and he's like I saw it and he's like I didn't he's like I thought I missed something he's like I I, I didn't get it he's like I, I thought I missed a scene or missed stuff and he's like and I went back and watched it again and brought a notebook and he's like no I didn't miss anything and he's like when I got to the end I realized that I, it was unfolding exactly how it was supposed to be and everything comes together so magically Right, but at the same time, so you're in the midst of this masterful storytelling that's happening, and there's all these seedy ass fucking characters in the yeah. middle of it. Right, there's like a fence, Benicio del Toro, yeah. and all those other guys. There's a fence. There's all the classic archetypes of of criminals are represented in in that group. You know, yeah. um, that that movie's so good. I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah, it's but. also brilliant because you, you the whole time you're thinking the Gabriel Byrne character is like the mastermind. For that sure, they're trying to catch, and this is this total red herring, obviously. Yeah, it's so good. It's it's a yeah. great one. So uh, tough, tough uh, three films. That's a tough one. We could do this ten times, and I'd have three different ones. Yeah. So my first one, and I kind of went um, in vaguely chronological order, but my second two are pretty close together in chronological order. So I started with Rafifi for all the reasons we've talked about. My second choice um, was actually Miller's Crossing. Oh, sure, you know, I thought yeah, about picking, good one. Picking Blood Simple or something like that, but I love... Oh, fucking I, hell, I forgot. Yeah, of course, Blood Simple. I love Shit. I love Miller's Crossing by the Coen Brothers because, speaking of Gabriel Byrne again, yeah. Gabriel Byrne is just masterful in that. Oh, my God. The guy who plays the Irish boss is brilliant. The guy who plays the Italian boss who's kind of at war with his Irish boss is brilliant. It's just this, like, back and forth, someone masterfully playing two sides against the other and, you know... Um, I love it because he's using his brains and his like political savvy uh, is really his weapon. He you know he does eventually use use a gun, but also Steve Buscemi uh, is holy shit, yeah, fucking uh, brilliant. And um, uh, what's his name? The guy who's Barton Fink and Barton Fink, John John Turturro. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, that was disrespectful to that because he's brilliant. Oh as, my god, he's so good. Um, yeah. And so that was. That uh, is also originally based on, and I'm going to say Dashiell. Dashiell Hammett's The Glass Key. Yeah. And they pulled the character Eddie the Dane from a short story, The Dane Curse. Yes. And they, yep. they put that into, but all the, it's a movie you can watch again and again and again. And you're always going to get something new out of it. It's just the symbology. Like I saw someone wrote a piece on just the symbology of hats and when someone's hat is off and, you know. All I've of this heard that. stuff and I've there's heard this whole like thing. masterful thing about the use, the use of hats and in the movie and fucking hell I've completely forgot about that hat thing yeah but you know as a uh, a period piece it's just to- oh my god totally Art bril- brilliant as well insane yeah. 
and uh, just so well done. I love that um, you know, the scene where uh, the Italian set they settle these guys in, um, and uh, a fire starts in the house. The Irish boss he's upstairs. He's listening to opera, and he's on his bed, and he's sitting, and this smoke starts to waft up. From oh, I think they kill one of his bodyguards, and when they kill him, he knocks over a candle. That's and it. Yeah. The curtains start on fire, and then so there's smoke coming up, and he sees the smoke, and you think he's he's um, realizing too late as you see these guys coming up the steps to kill him, and they come in, and he's uh, rolls off, and he's under the bed, and uh, shoots one of them in the ankle. He goes down, he shoots him right in the head, and he grabs the guy's Thompson. And uh, goes out, and the other guys flee the scene. They hop into this old car, and they go down the street. And there's just, just this brilliant scene of him like taking out this car so with badass. the Thompsons. And I love the like the guy's second henchman or whatever is that has this line that's like always oh, sticks with me. It's like the old man always was an artist with a Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a badass scene. Yeah, so brilliant. And then you know, of course, the way he manipulates the. The Eddie the Dane character is the only one who's on to him the whole time and is his arch nemesis and the way he yep. manipulates the Italian crime boss into eventually getting rid of the Dane. Uh, in the a, women characters are so yeah, good. Yeah, women characters are so good. It's so well acted, you know, all around. So well written. Such a clever ori- oh, original movie. There really isn't, uh, hasn't been that much like it. Good call. So That's a good call. Then for my last pick, I... I thought about the French Connection, you know, just because it's such such a brilliant, you know, such a brilliant movie, and the the car chase scene that happens where he's chasing super around important subway. crime film, yeah, super important seminal crime film. Probably should have chosen that. I um, I like it. I wouldn't watch it again and again. And a movie that I I have to stop and watch when it's on is Heat by Michael Mann. Oh. It's so good. Yeah, the gun battle with the M16s in downtown LA is. The, without a doubt, the best gun battle in any film. No question. Ever. Well, it's they, they remade the the real life North Hollywood shootout. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean that that's what that whole thing was was kind of influenced yeah. by. And you could say you know Val Kilmer, you know whatever, take him or leave him. He's got a stupid fucking ponytail in that movie. Oh, the worst. Uh, yeah. And you know he's maybe not the best actor, but this also the scene where. I mean, you also have De Niro and Pacino, which you don't, you know. Come on. I mean, and the scene where they sit down in the diner and have the reckoning. They're like, yeah, you seem like an okay guy and maybe we would have been friends, but I'm going to fucking nail you to the wall if you do this. And they they sit down and just the dialogue in the back and forth is so real and it's so well acted between them when they finally have this sit down. They're like, if you're going to do this, I'm coming for you. You can go to that diner. If you come for me... I'm I'm gonna take you out. Yeah, and he's in. Yeah, in. Oh my god! And they both know it's gonna happen. That thing is masterful. Michael Mann is so good. Yeah. Um, and I think that has a place. That's an interesting choice. Um, because you've got like that that amazing heist in the beginning, the yeah. the the armored car. And you know what's great about it is that they use like a lot of um. God, who was the so Michael Mann, um, his history is pretty um, deep in crime. Right. Like do you, you may know more about it than I do, but wasn't he a crime writer or he was like a a journalist? I mean, okay. Um, I huh. believe he was. Um, Interesting. But he's a stickler for um, the details of how criminals actually 
ply their trade. Right. So, like, the scenes where, like, where they lose, um, where they lose their wheelman, and they see the short order cook, yep. and he's, and De Niro picks him up, like, that's the kind of thing that is super real. You know, like, that's the, that actually is something that would happen. It feels so authentic. You right. know, all of his yeah, stuff yeah. does. It's true. Often, often killing the guards. Uh, that movie is so great. Yeah. I can't, I have to watch it, too. And then, I, you know, two of my favorite films of all time could have also been in this list. I don't think they're, like, a, a 101 sort of intro to, like, seminal crime films. But The Limey is one of my favorite films of all time. It's so Probably great. in my top ten. Yeah. Absolutely love it. And then um, the the dialogue and the interplay between characters and Sexy Beast is oh. like, oh my God. The, <laughs> well, the acting and every, everything about that movie is just so unbelievable. It's, yeah, I saw that. I had no, I was caught completely on my heels the first time I saw that. I was like, oh, Ben Kingsley's in it. Yeah. And I'll, let me check it out. And from the very first thing, like when that boulder is rolling down the, you know, that opening scene. Yeah. And, and they're playing the Stranglers song. Yeah. Um, it, from I was just like, holy shit! From that first second through the entire film, and which is two hours long, I was just like, holy shit! Great heist, in yeah. That. And yeah, and the heist isn't even like the heist is nothing. That's like almost practically the third act. It absolutely is third act. Yeah, yeah. And but Kingsley's character, oh is, my god, Unreal. I don't know. I can't think of some a more like, oh my god, he's so cold. And it's the. The spin on the, like, one last job thing, which is so brilliant. You see it done so much. The spin on this is, like, this guy has to be dragged, <laughs> literally dragged, you know, pretty much kicking and screaming. He, the last thing he wanted on Earth to do was do this one last job. And usually there's, there's some, obviously, some sort of need that drives them to do the one last job that gets them caught or whatever. And this was such an original twist on that, because not only does he not want to do it, the reasons why he does end up doing it is so unique and interesting and the way the whole job goes down is so unique and his relationship with um the what's the name of the actor who plays swearingen elsewhere in deadwood who is in that place that like crazy fucking oh, the boss crime boss he plays this, the boss yeah, yeah fuck, I can't remember british the actor I can't remember really name. amazing Jesus, he's awesome terrible. uh so yeah you know the could, one last score could could have picked that but, yeah you, yeah uh didn't there's like we could do this 10 times <laughs> And, have, and I'm sure we will. Yeah, I hope we do. <laughs> All right, so that is it for this week. Uh, thank you uh, for listening to Good Looking Out. Yeah, that was fun. Once again, a special thanks to Kaya Fisher for all the audio engineering assistance. And uh, you can find us online at glopodcast.com. You can email us at goodlookingoutpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at glopodcast. And remember, life is too short to waste time and money on